0: Today is part B of a two-part message, Colossians chapter 4, verses 2 to 6. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it, with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us, that God may open to us a door for the word, to declare the mystery of a Christ, on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom towards outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. So sometimes we Christians, we're we're really good at knowing how to get saved, right? So we know the gospel message and how to get saved, but that's... Then, when we begin the, our lives of being the saved. And being the saved, sometimes it, we gotta really work out, how, how do I fit in here? And um, over the last month, we've been talking about taking off the old self and putting on the new self, Christ in us, being renewed in Christ. Right? So, so when you became a Christian, you from that point on you cannot stay the same as what you once were and so disciples of Jesus will be very different to people of the world and so for Christians then it then becomes an issue of okay well how should I now relate to the people of the world because I myself I once was a person of the world but I'm not anymore and so how do I relate to them now and throughout the centuries, Christians have come to some very different positions on this and, um, and they come to very different positions on it today. And you will have noticed this for sure amongst other Christians, right? So for some Christians, it's hard to even tell that they even are a Christian. They just blend right on in with the rest of the world and they don't seem to be any different at all. Some of them go to the pubs and the clubs and they fit right in with drunken culture. They're, they're not phased at all by rude jokes or lewd behaviour. And they're just as selfish as anyone. They're just as fixated on this life as anyone. They, some of them, they, they dress in a way that says, hey, I'm a sexual object, look at me. Uh, they'll watch any movie. Doesn't matter how debased it is. They'll sing along with any song. It doesn't matter how ungodly the lyrics are they embrace social media the same way that anybody else with You can't, just can't tell the difference. They become a, a keyboard warrior who is just as hurtful, just as spiteful, just as slanderous, just as condescending as anybody else. And, and they just fit right on into the world. But then there's other Christians who totally withdraw themselves from the world. Uh, in the Middle Ages, they would form what's called the cloister, and, and they'd get together in their own little Christian commune, and then they'd build a wall to keep the world out. And they'd have they'd farm their own food so that they wouldn't have to deal with those pesky non-Christians. And there's remnants of these scattered throughout the world, convents and monasteries walled off from the world. And that still happens today. We, we just build walls of a different kind. So some Christians might shut themselves off the, from the world today by. Well, if all of my friends are Christians and the only people that I ever have over for dinner are Christians, and when I go to the coffee shop, I go to the Christian coffee shop. My doctor's a Christian doctor. I listen to Christian music. I go to a Christian school. I work in a Christian workplace. I only shop at the Christian shops and I only listen to the Christian radio and only watch Christian television. Now, none of those things are bad. None of those things are bad. But by doing it and just only engaging with Christians, what we do are doing is we are building our own walls to keep the pesky world out from socialising with me. See, that the temptation for us, and, and this is, I don't know if it's a temptation for you, it is for me. I, I, I enjoy the company of Christians far, far better than the cr- company of non-Christians. Is anyone else like that? Ken does right. Ken, you and I will get together and smokeo afterwards. This lot—they're going elsewhere, right? But the thing is, the temptation is to retreat into our familiar, secure Christian holy huddle. But if we Christians isolate ourselves from the world, we don't have any opportunities to share Christ with the world or to be Christ to the world as we serve Christ in the world. What did Jesus do? Our Lord is not someone who shut himself off from the world. And the religious leaders of his day criticised him for it. Uh, The Pharisees, they were known as the separated ones. That's what the word Pharisee means. And they frowned at Jesus. Oh, he hangs out with tax collectors and prostitutes. Have you ever had somebody accuse you of that, hanging out with tax collectors and prostitutes? I don't think too many of us are in danger of that. And Jesus explained his actions, it's the sick who need a doctor. And guess what? That hasn't changed. It's still the sick who need a doctor. It's still the sinners who need a saviour. And one of the final commands that Jesus gave to his disciples was to go where? go into your holy huddle no go out into all of the world okay so how are we to relate to people of the world if we have taken off our old self and we put on the new self and we're now being renewed in Christ as such a person how am I supposed to relate to the world Well, let's start with this. First of all, we have to realise that this is going to be offensive to the world, and it's probably also offensive to some Christians. But Paul's very clear here. Unbelievers, he refers to as outsiders. And they are. The Greek word that he uses is exo, which means those who are without, those who stand outside and sometimes i think the christian church are too apologetic about this christians and non-christians are radically different we're as different as night is from day as light is from darkness whereas we're as different as holiness is to the profanity now it's really hard to say that without appearing as if we're up ourselves or to to appear as if as if we're being elitist and it, it truly is offensive to talk about insiders and outsiders. No, and, and even in churches, we don't want anybody to feel like they're an outsider, do we? Do we? No. But, but the truth of the matter is, there is this spiritual divide. But let us never forget the reason why we are not outsiders. The only reason that we are now insiders is not because we've done something so wonderful. It's because Jesus has done something wonderful. We're no longer outsiders because our God has graciously revealed himself and brought us in. To move from the outside to the inside, we need to have the mystery of Christ revealed to us and we have to respond to this mystery of Christ. And in this letter, Paul's talked about the mystery of Christ a couple of times already. Right? So so let's nail this down. In this world, there are two kingdoms the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light. The kingdom of Christ and the kingdom of, of this world. And those who have not received Christ as their Lord are his enemies, they're outsiders. They're not in the kingdom. And on the day of judgment, there's going to be two groups of people. There are going to be those who are saved, who will enter into his glory. And there'll be those who are not saved, who will enter into judgment. And until we understand this, we're not going to understand the imperative of proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ to unbelievers who Jesus loves but are not yet saved. God loves outsiders, and so must we. Now, I don't care how offensive this is. The scriptures are clear that from the Christian perspective, unbelievers are outsiders. But because we have taken off self, because we're being transformed in Christ, As disciples of Jesus, we love every outsider so much that we would go to great lengths. We would put ourselves in great danger. We would bear great discomfort to reveal the mystery of Christ to outsiders so that they too can come to know Christ and become insiders and be saved in the way that we are saved. Now, the thing is, while the binary nature of saved versus unsaved, insiders versus outsiders is offensive, sometimes Christians are deliberately extra offensive. And you probably know a few Christians, um, and some of you might even own up Well, what's probably me he's talking about, who are extra offensive in the way they relate to non-Christians. Now, Paul will have none of that. And we'll get to that shortly. But let's begin at verse 5. Walk in wisdom towards outsiders, making the best use of the time. Do you know why Jesus hasn't returned yet? No, he's not waiting for your kids to grow up that's probably why most of us are, oh Jesus just hold that off for a bit I want to see the kids grow up and then guess what next thing I'd be oh, I want to see the grandkids grow up um, why has Jesus not returned yet well we're told in 2nd Peter chapter 3 that he's being patient he's patiently giving people time to repent now In what the earlier verses of this passage talked about and what we talked about last week, Paul's been talking about prayer. And what's he been telling us to pray? Pray that God would open a door for the word. Pray that we can declare the mystery of Christ. Pray that when we do this, that we can make it clear. What, What do you think's on his mind here? It's a word that most of us know but don't like evangelism he's talking about evangelism now so he's wanting us to pray for these things that god would open up a door for the word that we would be able to declare the mystery of christ to pray and then pray that we can make it clear do we stop at prayer no basically what he now is telling us is is do what you pray Walk in wisdom towards outsiders, making the best use of the time. If in God's wisdom, he's giving outsiders time to repent, well, for us to walk in God's wisdom, how do we use this time? By declaring the mysteries of Christ. Time. Who's who's got enough of it? Everyone has enough time. Who wishes that they had more time? Anyone? 10080. Who knows what that number is? 10080. That's how many minutes I had I have this week. Guess how many minutes I had last week? 10080. How many minutes do you have this week? 10,080. How many did you have last week? 10,080. How many of those 10,080 minutes did we spend declaring the mysteries of Christ? Not just to each other, but to outsiders. How many of that 10,080 minutes did I spend at work? How many of that 10,080 minutes did I spend reading magazines? How many of those minutes did I spend reading, uh, enjoying my family? How many of those 10,080 minutes were spent watching the television? Or listening to the cricket? Is the cricket still on? Or is it? It is, yeah. How many of those 10,080 minutes did I spend worrying Worrying about COVID, worrying about vaccines, worrying about government mandates, worrying about finances, worrying about the weather. How many of that 10,080 minutes did I spend on social media? Reading stuff, giving my opinions, assessing other people's opinions, liking funny cat videos. Apparently that's a thing. Is it still a thing? I don't know, I'm not on social media. How many of those 10,080 minutes did we spend visiting the sick? How many of that 10,080 minutes did we spend consoling the heartbroken? And how many of those did we spend declaring the mystery of Christ to outsiders? We all have the same amount of time. Now, I know every one of us thinks, oh, yes, but but me, oh, I've got much more important things I need to do. Guess what? Everybody thinks that way. We all have the same amount of time. Uh, in my field year, uh, when I was in, in Bible college, I arranged to be able to spend some time in the prisons. And I asked to be able to spend a week in the prisons um, with the prison chaplains, uh, they weren't able to pull that off, but they were able to arrange two days. And so one day I, I spent at the Woodford Maximum Security Jail with, um, with a chaplain, and another day I spent it at Pallon Creek, which is like a prison farm in a very picturesque setting. But when I visited both those places, and it was the same for each of them, what really surprised me was just how open most of the inmates were to, to, to having a conversation with the prison chaplain. Um, and me, just this chap who walks in a nobody. Um, and I think what, what I realised is, is we live in a time poor culture. We just fill our days up with so much stuff and there's so many things we wanna see and do and watch we just fill our days up so much. But in a prison, they're in a time-rich culture. They've got nothing but time. In fact, it's called doing time. And as Christians, like most of the world, most of us have made ourselves time-poor. When Paul says making the best use of the time, in the Greek, he's actually using a marketing term, meaning buy back the time you have, redeem your time, regain the time, reclaim the time that you have. 10,080 minutes in the week. Regain some of that time. Reclaim some of that time to, to use for the wisdom of God to share Christ with outsiders. Now, for me, I'm a task-orientated person, right? So when I begin a task, I really don't wanna stop that task until I've finished. And that's doubly so when I'm doing contract work for someone. And so when I'm doing contract work for someone, I set aside a certain number of hours in the day to get that job done, or if it's a bigger job, a certain number of days in the week to get that job done. And I'll start really early in the morning to try and make the best use of my time for work. But then, uh, almost invariably, a spanner gets thrown in my works. And it usually happens at about 10 o'clock or half past nine when the client comes out and I'm working away and they say, we're putting on the jug. You wanna come in in and have Smoko with us? Now, the problem is, I know you can't tell this by looking at me, but Michael doesn't stop for Smoko. It looks like I only only have Smoko, but I don't stop for Smoko. When I'm working, when I'm contracting, whatever, I just keep on going. Um, And even with lunch, if I'm driving a tractor, I don't stop the tractor, I just open my lunch box and eat my lunch and keep driving the tractor. Um, bit hard on the skid steer because you you're sort of using both hands at once. You can't really do that and eat your lunch at the same time. And so I've got a dilemma, haven't I? Right? I'm task orientated, I'm focused, I want to get this done. But I learned a long time ago that, that for me to make the best use, not of my time, but of God's time. No matter how much I wanna keep on working, I know that I'm gonna to have to stop the clock, knowing that for the 30 minutes it takes to have that cup of tea, whether well, usually it's gonna be an hour, or if the conversation's really good, it's gonna be two hours. No, for that 30 minutes to two hours, the clock's gonna be stopped. And the day that I've set aside to earn a living, not gonna happen. Guess what's most important? Spending that time engaging with someone. See, I'm gonna I'm gonna take that time to spend in conversation with unbelievers. We take that time to, to spend in conversation with outsiders, and who knows? God may answer the prayer that we've been told to pray, that He would open a door for the Word to declare the mystery of Christ. And every time we make that decision, yep, I've got all of this stuff planned, but guess what? Here's an opportunity for me to spend a time in conversation with someone. This might be the opportunity for God to answer that prayer that I've been praying, that that he would open the door for his word so that I can share with this person the mystery of Christ. 10,080 minutes. When there's an opportunity for the gospel, Drop everything. Rearrange your day if you have to, to share the good news of Jesus. But you might say to me, hang on, Michael, I just can't do that. My reply? 10,080. 10,080. That's how many minutes you've got. That's how many minutes I've got. That's how many minutes everyone has. You see, it doesn't matter what the Lord has called us to. The Lord may have called you to be a wage earner. He may have called you to be a business owner. He may have called you to be a contractor or a student or a professional or a public servant. You may be a full-time stay-at-home mum. You may be a dad, a grandparent, a retiree. It doesn't matter. Whatever the Lord has called you to, guess how many minutes he's blessed you with this week? 10,080. And whatever God has called you to, guess what? in that very role, in that very function that you have. He wants you to to open your eyes and look and notice opportunities for when God is opening a door for his word and use those opportunities. Now, the trouble is, as I said earlier, even though the gospel message is offensive, Right? It, it, it's good news but it's offensive. But the trouble comes because sometimes Christians seem to go out of their way to be extra offensive. Verse 6 says, Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. You ever notice that Some Christians, they have words of grace, while others, they seem to only have words of condemnation. Now, I'm not talking about cheap grace. Uh, You know what I mean by cheap grace? That's where you say, oh, it doesn't matter. Sin doesn't matter. You don't have to repent of anything. It's all okay. It doesn't matter. Sin does matter. Sin is abhorrent to God. And that's why we need to have gracious words. Gracious words are words that say, God's grace overrides sin. And because God is gracious, so will I be. But when we share Christ, do we come across as being condescending or do we come across as being gracious? And I challenge you to to analyse your own speech. Um, And and not just when you're talking to non-Christians, when you're talking to Christians as well. Is your speech condescending or is it gracious? A good way to do that is to have a look back over the emails you've sent and say, when I wrote to this person, what did I really sound like? And um, sometimes we might read something that we've written a month or more ago and go, oh my goodness, did I really say that? No wonder I hurt them. Or have a look at your social media and say, what the stuff that I'm writing there on Facebook or whatever, you know, is my speech always gracious and honouring of God? Is this the way that Jesus would speak? Or is this words of condemnation that I'm using? And let your speech always be seasoned with salt. That means it must be interesting And nice. Um, It's not very fashionable to have salt on your food these days. Um, I think most of you, most of the blokes here I know, I think are pretty, who who likes salt on their tucker? Come on, own up. Yeah, we're in the bush. We're in the bush. Hey, you know, when when I visit city friends, uh, more often than not, I have to go, "Uh, do you have any salt? And we've actually got friends who say, who say now, like back in the old days, well, actually we don't. Now they say, yes, it's in this cupboard. They go right to the back. We keep it for when you visit, Michael. It's like I'm the only person they know who eats salt. Now, I just don't understand that. Now, now for me, I have to eat salt because otherwise I get cramps and I have to eat a lot of it, otherwise I get cramps. But there's a second reason I need to eat a lot of salt because my food without it tastes boring. Um, not, not not that any of you, whenever you've given me a meal and I've asked for salt, but I'm not saying that it's boring, it's just all food needs salt to make it good. Um, the, in fact, there's only one food that I've discovered that doesn't need salt to make it better, and that's Vegemite. And that's because with Vegemite, you just add more Vegemite. It's, it's fixed, it's easy. It's just like black salt. But the thing is, what, what the salt does is it takes food that's otherwise bland and it gives it flavour. It makes it nice. Sharing the gospel, sharing the good news of Jesus isn't meant to be bland. Now, that doesn't mean that we have to make stuff up. In fact, it's abhorrent to do that. Um, I've got a friend who was... Um, he'd sort of start telling his testimony and he'd start and it's this little puny wiry sort of a fellow and he'd start telling the story about how he is a hell's angel bikey and and um used to be drugs and and in the culture of rape and all this that and the other he goes oh well that's what I like to tell people but my dad was actually a pastor and and (laughs) it it was just his way of starting um but the thing is I know people who have embellished the testimonies. When I was a young fella, there was a, a um, well known uh, Christian comedian by the name of Mike Wanaki. Some of you will have heard of him. Um, he wrote, wrote books about how he used to be a satanic high priest before he became a Christian. It tells this great big long story. And his, because he's a comedian, it's so good to listen to. Like, it's so funny. And he tells this story and you go, wow, that is amazing what God has done in this bloke's life. The problem is it was a lie. He, he didn't have that. That wasn't his life at all. He just made it up. And that was revealed years later. Right? So we're not meant to to embellish our testimony with lies. But we season we season what we say with salt. What that means is, Let your speech always be gracious, interesting, and nice, flavoursome. What Christ has done for you is exciting. You might think, oh, I've got a really boring testimony. Guess what? Your testimony is going to be very exciting for someone to hear because they don't think that they've had something particularly, they're not gonna have a great testimony to share either. And what they need to do here is about somebody who has had a big turnaround, which initially you thought wasn't a big turnaround. Your testimony, what Christ has done for you is exciting and others need to hear it. Now, when I look around me at the moment, um, so, sometimes I think all of what the world is going to hear of some Christians they're just going to see a whole bunch of angry Christians cranky with this, cranky with that, cranky with the other always going off about oh how bad the world is and how bad this and is and how bad that is and some people are just utterly consumed by it and their speech It's just not gracious at all. And it's not seasoned. It's distasteful. And so it's really important for us to be, have this speech seasoned with salt to be gracious. But why? Why should our speech always be gracious and seasoned with salt? So that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Something I've noticed with, with the apostles in the New Testament is the gospel message that they proclaimed was, was pretty much the same, but the way that that message was communicated with outsiders was, was different in every circumstance. Effective evangelism isn't about having a set evangelism program or routine that's gonna work in every circumstance. What it is, it's about being gracious and interesting and and having nice conversation that leads to questions about Christ. And this person will have a different question to that person and they're they're looking for answers. Well, some of them. Some of them will be genuinely seeking answers Others will actually be quite antagonistic towards Christ. And when they ask, ask you questions, they're actually trying to tear you down. That's okay. That, that, there is no difference. We are to, to make sure that our speech is always gracious and kind, whether somebody is genuinely asking, wanting to know about Christ, or whether somebody is asking these curly questions, trying to disprove Christ. Our speech is to be gracious, and kind. 10,080 minutes. How many of those did we just use? 35? Maybe. So I'm sure someone was timing me. <laughs> 32, including the Bible reading. Oh, phew. Phew. Not too bad. Not too bad. So that, that leaves 32. So we're probably up to 33 by now. So that leaves us with 10,047 for the rest of the week. What are you going to do with that remaining 10,047 minutes? Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Let's pray. Lord, open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ, that, that we would be able to make it clear and that we would speak how we ought to speak. Lord, that, that we would buy back, that we would reclaim that time that you've given us to share Christ with outsiders. Lord, give us a love for the people of this world as you love the people of this world and help us as we share Christ, and not only when we share Christ, but in all of our conversations with outsiders, may our speech always be gracious, always be seasoned, always be tasty, interesting and nice so that we wouldn't turn people off of you, but that we would be able to answer them with the grace and the love of Christ himself. And may Christ be glorified in us And may outsiders be drawn to Christ through us as we represent Christ in this world. Amen.